The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to FinancialSenseWealth.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. Since 2020, I've been suggesting that there's two alternative paths for the U.S. economy in the decade ahead. And one would be the great inflation deja vu all over again, like the 1970s keeping interest rates high, creating problems for the economy and, and so on. The alternative scenario was a much happier one, is a much happier one, and that's a roaring 2020 scenario. And what I see is that things are working out reasonably well in that direction. I think there's less risk of uh, great inflation uh, like the 1970s all over again, and a greater likelihood that we are in fact going to see the roaring 2020 scenario. The way I see it is we had a mini bear market in 22, and we have now a mini bull market into probably the first quarter in 24, when I expect the market to top. And the decline in stocks uh, that I expect into late summer of 24 is probably going to be a nasty decline. And next year could be one of the few years in history that sees an important high and an important low in the same year. And I think the next bull cycle from wherever it starts, in my view, from the low 3000s, will be a very powerful one. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. Wall Street went all out on stocks and bonds this week. Stocks rose and bond yields fell as Wall Street is anticipating rate cuts by the Fed next year. However, on Friday, Fed officials threw cold water on the rate cut idea by saying it is much too early to be talking about coming rate cuts. Meanwhile, the national debt continues to climb as we are about to cross the $34 trillion mark this month, adding $3 trillion of new debt this year. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Paplavin. Welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. Coming up, Jim Welsh from Macro Tides joins me for an extended interview as we discuss why the Fed may not be cutting as much or as quickly as Wall Street anticipates. We also look at recession probabilities and why interest rates could be heading higher after next year's election. Later on in the program, Chris Paplav and Chris Sheridan will be here with another edition of Smart Macro. But first, let's look at the stories driving this week's markets with Ryan Paplava. This week in the financial markets, we had a few key catalysts move securities. They were the inflationary news from the consumer price and producer price indexes, the rebalancing of the S&P 500 and NASDAQ 100 Friday, but the biggest was the Federal Reserve policy decision on Wednesday. I would say yet another after those is the technical picture, which is an overbought everything after the November and December rally created such large gains in stocks, bonds, and some commodities. As the Fed's rate pause and earnings growth continues to embolden investors. Getting into the weeds, the major events this week was the Fed's decision on Wednesday and Chairman Powell's comments following that decision. The Federal Reserve left the Fed funds rate unchanged at five and a quarter to five and a half percent. The summary of economic projections featured an improved growth outlook for 2023, lowered inflation outlook for 2024, and a median estimate of three rate cuts in 2024 versus only two in the previous projections. The two-year Treasury yield, the most sensitive bond to the Fed's decisions, plunged 28 basis points to 4.46%, and the 10-year note fell 18 basis points to 4.02% following the statement. 
One of the key comments from Powell at the presser was the acknowledgement that the FOMC discussed when it might be appropriate to begin paring back its restrictive policy at this meeting. He said the Fed understands the risk. If they hang on too long to their restrictive policy, they know the risks and they're focused on not making that mistake, also stating that both mandates are important of price stability and full employment. However, despite these comments, the Fed is not discussing any change in the pace of quantitative tightening where the Fed shrinks its balance sheet of bond holdings. Powell also said the Fed needs to reduce restriction on the economy well before the 2% inflation target is met. Stocks, bonds, and commodities at the index levels rose considerably after the 2 p.m. Eastern statement and continued rallying into the close. Jeff Gunlock of DoubleLine told CNBC following the meeting that the 10-year Treasury yield will be in the low 3% range next year and that he thinks the current strong correlation of strong bonds and strong equities will break down. He also said the odds of a recession in 24 have gone up and that there will be a lot of money printing to combat the next recession. Words that seem to support the rally seen in gold and silver Wednesday. Following the Fed, the ECB kept rates unchanged on Thursday as expected along with the Bank of England, but neither discussed plans to consider lower rates in the future at this time. Friday was an interesting turn of events as New York Fed President Williams told CNBC before the market opened that the Fed isn't really talking about rate cuts right now and that it is premature to think about the timing of rate cuts. Definitely a bit of Fed jawboning the market, I think, as most put more weight on Powell's comments earlier on Wednesday. It did, however, cause rates to jump at the open before settling down. Previously in the week, the CPI was up 4% year-over-year, unchanged from October, while services inflation less rent was up 0.6% month-over-month. But the data didn't do much to change sentiment. At the same time, oil prices were down significantly, helping to cool any inflationary fears. Oil prices are pulling into key support that held this summer, so it should be an interesting commodity to watch next week. The last catalyst to share was the rebalancing of the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ 100 Friday, along with quarterly options and futures expiration. An article posted on CNBC talked about the concern over the weighting of these indices. When you look at the five companies, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, NVIDIA, and Alphabet, they make up almost 25% of the S&P 500. Six companies, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, NVIDIA, Alphabet, and Broadcom make up 40% of the NASDAQ 100. According to the article, Alphabet, Apple, Comcast, ExxonMobil, Visa, and Marathon Petroleum will see their share counts reduced, so funds indexed to the S&P 500 will have to reduce their weighting, while the NASDAQ, EQT, and Amazon will have their share counts increased. Three companies are being added to the S&P 500, Uber, Jabil, and Builders First Source, and three will be deleted. Sealed Air, Alaska Air, and Solar Edge Technologies, which will go to the small cap index S&P 600. In the NASDAQ 100, six will be added. CDW Corporation, Coca-Cola Your Pacific Partners, DoorDash, MongoDB, Roper Technologies, and Splunk, while Align Technologies, eBay, Enphase Energy, JD.com, Lucid Group, and Zoom will be deleted. For the last catalyst, it was clear Thursday afternoon that all things hit an air pocket. At one point, the Nasdaq was up 0.8% before going negative intraday on no news, likely caused by some thinking a reversion to the mean might be necessary. That sums up this week's wrap-up, and if you don't think securities take a random walk down Wall Street and move based on catalysts and you want to work with an advisor that thinks like you do, give me a call. 
at 888-486-3939 and ask for Ryan. Up next this week's guest expert, Jim Welsh at Macro Tides. If you're seeking financial advice and how to invest in today's markets, Financial Sense Wealth Management can help. From setting up or providing advice on 401k plans, managing corporate cash balances, to helping individuals, foundations, and businesses achieve their financial goals. Give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, the Santa Claus rally continues, at least some good cheer for investors. Joining us on the program is Jim Wells from Macro Tides. Jim, I want to go to something that you wrote in a recent newsletter, and we're just to let our listeners know we're going to be posting this on the website. But Wall Street rate cuts and no recession in 2020. 24. So let's talk about that because Wall Street is talking about a rate cut coming as soon as March and maybe two or three coming after that. You're not buying into that. Explain why. Well, if we just have to listen to what Chair Powell, Jim, has said over the last two years as the Fed embarked on raising the funds rate by 500 basis points. And one of the, the sounding points has been, we want to avoid the mistakes of the 1970s. And in the 1970s, just to refresh people's minds, the Fed aggressively hiked rates like in 1969 and 70, 73, 74, tipping the economy into a recession that forced the Fed to then subsequently cut the funds rate aggressively. Lo and behold, inflation continued to zigzag its way higher up until 1980. And the Fed then, under Paul Volcker, was required to jack the funds rate up to an unbelievable 20%. Hard to fathom. That tipped the economy into a very, very deep recession in 1982. Paula said they want to avoid that. And I think, Jim, what Wall Street is focused on primarily is inflation. Inflation has come down a lot. It's going to come down more in 2024. But I don't think think that's the only yardstick that's going to guide monetary policy next year. I think Chair Powell is looking at tightness in the overall economy. And there's two measurements that I discussed in the December uh, macro tides. And I'm happy to offer uh, that issue to faithful listeners of Financial Sense. All they have to do is send me an email, jimwelshmacro at gmail. I'm happy to send it out because I think they'll find it informative. The point being is, Powell is looking at tightness in the overall economy. There's two measurements that I look at to provide insight, and that would be capacity utilization. How much are factories running uh, near capacity? And the more near capacity that they're running, companies then have pricing power. Why? Because they're running at a high level of capacity because of demand. And the capacity utilization rate is around 78.5%. And if you go back the last 50 years, in recessions, there have been times it dropped under 70%. I just think the Fed will be happy to see utilization drop down towards 76% or lower as an indication that companies will lose pricing power, which many companies are still exercising. And as obviously as companies raise prices, that keeps inflation at a higher level. The second component is unemployment. 
the most recent report showed uh, unemployment rate dropped from 3.9 to 3.7. Powell has said he wants to see the unemployment rate tick a little higher. And the reason for all this, Jim, is that once the Fed cuts rates and stimulates growth, the economy is going to uh, reaccelerate. And if we're near these capacity restraints, both in terms of production and the labor market, inflation is likely to pick up earlier in the business cycle in 2025, 2026, than what Powell and the FOMC would like to see. So to me, that's why the idea that the Fed will be cutting rates as early as in March and a four or five, you know, and cut it in total four or five times next year, just doesn't jive with the idea of the Fed avoiding the mistakes of the 1970s. And I'll just toss this out. In January of 2022, and this was after inflation had already reached 7% in late 2021, Powell said that inflation wasn't going to be transitory. And in January of 2022, he said inflation represents a severe threat. Wall Street at that point in time, Jim, was looking for only three rate hikes in all of 2022, and they each were going to be 25 basis points. So my point is, Wall Street has a great track record of getting it wrong. And I think this is going to prove to be another example. Well, let's stay on the labor rates here, because one issue that we're dealing with as a country, you know, our generation, Jim, the baby boomers, there's 10,000 retiring every single day. So that's an experienced workforce that's leaving the workforce. So what impact do you think that's having on this tightness? It's contributing to it without a question. And the pandemic accelerated the number of people who chose to retire earlier than maybe they were planning to originally. So there's no doubt, Jim, that it's contributing to tightness in the labor market. It will continue to contribute, obviously, as it plays out and more and more baby boomers retire. All the more reason why I think the Fed will want to see the unemployment rate tick higher. I think you know the, the dot plot or the summary of economic projections in September showed an increase to 4.1. My guess is it's going to wind up going higher than 4.1. And one of the things I discussed in the December macro ties was if you go back the last 50 years, the unemployment rate has had you know a pattern of sharply beginning to increase about 12 months after the most recent hike or the last hike in the cycle. Well, the last hike this time around was July. You take 12 months, you're talking about getting close to the summer of next, you know, next year. So I think we're going to see unemployment tick higher, but it is always a lagging indicator because companies don't want to let good workers go. And as we all know, the last couple of years, finding good workers was really, really hard. So again, I think the table is set for a meaningfully slowdown in the economy, and we'll see unemployment rate tick higher. And I think that's one of the things that Powell wants to see so that as more baby boomers retire, the labor market will still loosen up and that will help keep wage growth down going out in subsequent years. Well, that's interesting because I want to talk about something else that plays in here. And that's what we've seen with interest rates. And maybe this is why Wall Street is doing it. But Jim, you've got evidence, whether it's the uh, manufacturing indexes, showing that the economy is slowing down. But then on the other hand, Wall Street is bumping up their projections for corporate profits. Those two are not aligned. You can't have a slowing economy and increasing your potential for corporate profits. It doesn't add up. Doesn't compute, as they would say. 
Yeah, basically, Jim, Wall Street is forecasting that GDP growth will slow to three or four tenths uh, annualized in the first and second quarter. In other words, no recession, but then it's going to recover. And that's where they're deriving that we're going to see corporate earnings next year increase by 11 to 12 percent. I will add that in the last 50 years, the Fed has never cut rates when earnings were going up. Why? Well, because that higher earnings reflect a you know a healthy, stronger economy, which at this stage of the business cycle would increase inflationary pressures. So again, Wall Street has crafted a, a narrative, Jim, that almost can't be improved upon. No recession, earnings up 11%, and the Fed's going to be cutting rates four or five times next year. I mean, talk about Santa Claus. Yeah, that's what Wall Street is expecting to show up in everybody's stocking You know, at this point. I just think that given history, that is really unrealistic and unlikely. Okay. So let's talk about not just rate cuts, but let's talk about the bond market because a little over a month ago, you had the two, the 10, and the 30-year bond all above 5%. In a month, you know, I'm looking at a graph of the 30-year bond. We've gone gone from about 5.1% down to about 4.3, and it did get down to 4.2, almost a full percentage point. And you can see it in the 2, the 10, and the 30. That's the fastest drop I've seen in interest rates in, gosh, decades. What's your view on rates here? And what is that telling you? Well, one of the things that I try to emphasize is combining fundamental analysis, which is what you and I have been talking about, monetary policy, the economy, earnings, with technical analysis. And in late October, uh, looking at the pattern of the increase in treasury yields, as well as the pattern in the long-term treasury ETF, which has a symbol of TLT. It appeared to have completed or was in the process of completing the decline from March of 2020. And as a result, my expectation based on that technical input was that we were going to see a fairly significant decline in treasury yields. And I believe it was on October 23rd, treasury bonds and TLT recorded what's called a key reversal day. In other words, it made a lower low and then it reversed up took out the prior day's high and closed up. And on that day, I recommended buying TLT because I thought treasury yields would decline fairly significantly. That price pattern, Jim, suggest it, the TLT went from 179 down to just over 82. I think TLT has a pretty decent chance of rallying up to 105 to 109 next year. So the technical formation suggests that that's what's coming. And I think the fundamental analysis side of the equation is that the economy is going to slow materially. And at some point in time, I think in the first half of next year, Wall Street is going to begin to get concerned about the potential for a recession. And insurance companies, pension funds will trip over themselves wanting to buy longer dated treasury bonds uh, you know, for uh, their portfolios. So this is a perfect combination, in my view, of how uh, technical analysis can be intertwined with, if you will, the fundamental analysis and provide key inflection points. Back in October, Jim, as you know, a lot of people on Wall Street, when the 10-year got to 5%, they were told, well, I think it can get to five and a half. Oh, I think it could get to six. The chart pattern suggested, no, we're going to see a significant drop in treasury yields. So far, we have, as you noted, seen a very big drop. Now, the other message from that chart pattern, Jim, which I think addresses where you're going with this, is after this rally where treasury yields come down, treasury bonds go up, uh, the yield is going to then subsequently 
rise and get above 5% on the 10-year and 5.2 on the 30-year. And I, my belief is uh, that one of the reasons that's going to happen is if I'm right about the economy slowing materially, the budget deficit, which was 1.7 trillion in the last year, even though the economy was growing about two and a quarter percent, I think the deficit goes to three trillion, three and a half trillion. And that's why later this year, early in 2025, I think treasury yields are going to go up and make a higher high. And that's going to be both disruptive for the economy, but it's also going to be a big problem for the equity market. So this is a case where, to me, technical analysis has provided a framework that I think is worth paying attention to until proven otherwise. You know, you're going in a direction I wanted to tackle next because I'm looking at the debt graph. We're at 33,912 this week. The Treasury is going to have to raise close to 250 billion. So we're going to be over 34 trillion by the end of the year. And next year, Jim, we could be at 38, 39 trillion. So if rates start to rise, we'll be spending over a trillion on interest, which is greater than the national defense budget. Yeah. No, I mean, I think reached an inflection point in terms of just how much debt is too much and the interest expense being the pressure point on the budget as well as on the economy. And this is one reason why I think a secular bear market is coming in the stock market, similar to the 1966-1982 time period, except I think there's the risk, Jim, that'll be worse because the budget deficit, the total amount of debt was far less as a percent of GDP back in 1980 or way less than 1966. So this is a big time problem that I know you've discussed often and for good reason. It is going to be a problem because ultimately it means that Congress is going to have to address uh, some of the mandatory spending programs uh, that make up, uh, I think, 70% of the budget when you exclude defense and discretionary spending. In other words, programs like Social Security, Medicare, and so forth. So that suggests to me that if and when we get to that breaking point, it's going to be very disruptive from a society standpoint where the government has to alter the promises that it's made to people and that people are dependent upon. So, you know, you're really right, I think, in discussing this point because, you know, there's an iceberg directly ahead (laughs) and we're sailing right toward it. You know, the interesting thing, if you add up Social Security, Medicare, the defense budget, interest on the debt, Jim, it's greater than total tax revenues that the government takes in. And one thing that I pay close attention to, because it tells me really more of what's going on in the economy, if the economy was that strong, I've seen government tax revenues decline by over $250 billion this year. So if we're doing that good, you would expect to see higher tax revenues. And that's not the case. They're declining. The only point I would make, though, Jim, is last year, we saw you know, significant losses both in the equity market and the bond market. And it would be interesting to look to see what portion of the decline that you're referencing was due to lower capital gains tax collections. You know, because look at the state of California, we're headed toward you know, a big iceberg because uh, collections are down so much. And California, I believe, gets a greater percentage of its budget from capital gains than any other state. 
And so last year, with the markets being really weak, it had a big impact. It doesn't take away from your point, though, Jim, is that there's a juggernaut of spending that's been going on for decades. Unfortunately, I think at some point in time, that will have to be addressed and changed. And it should be a combination in all likelihood of tax increases and some cutbacks in terms of spending from each of those programs, neither of which are going to fuel economic growth. So it's another factor of why GDP growth over the next 10, 15 years is going to be less than it historically has because government spending and deficit spending adds to aggregate demand. And as that gets curtailed, it's going to have a negative impact on GDP growth. You know, the other issue that if you're looking at this, Medicare goes broke in 2028. Social Security is in trouble in 2034. So, you know, politicians, next year is an election year. You're not going to see either party talk about these cuts. But, you know, one of the things that they could do, and I'm hearing this talk, is delay Social Security. So instead of age 62, they move it to age 65, full benefits at 69. That will help along with they're talking about raising the cap on Social Security taxes. But given next year's an election year, I want to talk about this because I don't think we're going to see anything like this, at least in my lifetime, that we've seen it. President Biden, is they're looking at starting impeachment inquiry into them. And so we may have impeachment investigations in Biden. Trump has got four different things he's been indicted on, so he's going to be in court. So what does this look like, Jim? You've got one president that has been in the process of being impeached, former president who's in on trial in four different courts. So if these two end up being the candidates, I've never seen anything like that. I suppose if Trump won, he could pardon himself. But I mean, like the Thanksgiving turkey, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that. But I've never seen anything like this. This is going to be, there has got to add some volatility to the market next year, depending on how the trial goes for Biden and how the trials go for Trump. You're right. I think World War II came up with a number of uh, expression. Snafu was one of them. And the other one that I recall was FUBAR. And I'm not going to say what those two, <laughs> what the acronym means, but to me, that's what we're looking at is FUBAR. The overall confidence in elections, I think, have been minimized for both parties. And almost like whatever happens in November, Jim, I think there's going to be a significant group, one side or the other, that's going to be crying foul. And to your other point, will we address problems that are significant? And the sooner we address some of those problems, you know, the solutions won't have to be quite as severe. It's not going to happen. So you're 100% right that in an election year, we will make no progress. The thing I would point out is we just went through a pandemic. More than a million Americans died. More than all the Americans who were killed during all the wars that we've ever been in. And yet the American populace is further divided than ever before that I can remember, which to me, is pretty amazing. And what it implies is that the only reason both political parties will begin to do what's best for the country is when things are so bad that they have to lay down the ideologies that they propose all the time and actually get something constructive done to try to help you know the average American and get the U.S. economy really back on a stronger footing. So you're right. 
we're going into an election year and all we're going to see is a lot of mudslinging and potentially two <laughs> presidential candidates tied up in court. Never seen anything like it. You know, the other issue that really strikes me here, too, because when you're looking at the spending, the budget, they keep postponing it, but the budget is calling for an additional $400 billion in spending. They're talking about this aid to Ukraine, which is another hundred something billion. One side wants to protect the border. The other side wants to protect Ukraine. They can't reach an agreement because the philosophies are so far apart. But Jim, when do you get to a point where you have a treasury auction? And this is, and I I think we're going to see this in the next couple of years, where they're going to go and have a treasury auction and there's not going to be buyers. And so they're going to either have the Fed come in or they're going to have to bump up interest rates. But when do the bond vigilantes show up? Because if you and I can see the deficits that are growing, the national debt that's growing, the disparity, like you say, next year, the deficit will probably be three trillion. And maybe the year after that, it could be four trillion. When do the bond vigilantes, because that's something that could discipline government in a way that nothing else can. You're right. And in reality, Jim, we've kind of already seen the first hints of what you're talking about, because in September and October, there were a couple of bond auctions that went very, very badly. And interest rates ticked higher on the 10 and 30 year treasury bond. And they were driven in part by this realization of, holy Moses, there's a lot of supply coming and it's going to be tough for the bond market to digest. So that was the first glimpse of the bond vigilantes reacting to the supply problem that you're talking about. I think if we go into a recession, that supply problem is going to become far larger. And the other thing I'll mention, and I have a piece called The Coming Secular Bear Market, and two of the components, Jim, that I think will contribute to that is if we look back over the last 70 years, back in the 1960s, every $1 of new debt generated about 90 cents of GDP. So when the federal government did spending back then, it really had a positive impact on economic growth. And of course, back in the 60s, the deficits were tiny compared to where they are today. Now, GDP is goosed by only about 30 cents on the dollar. So we're seeing fiscal spending gain less and less traction on actually helping the economy grow. So as they spend more money, I don't think that's going to change that equation. And I think the bond vigilantes are on it. The other thing I would point out is monetary policy. In the 50s and 60s and 70s and so forth, the Federal Reserve would lift or lower the federal funds rate, but it always was above inflation. So the real Fed funds rate was always positive. That changed in 2001 under Greenspan, where he dropped the funds rate down to 1% and held it there for about three and a half years, even while consumer prices were up 2 to 3%. In 2008, we saw the financial crisis. The Fed then not only cut rates to below inflation, but then it began to expand its balance sheet. And obviously, again, after the pandemic, The point being, Jim, is fiscal or monetary policy was very, very effective for decades in terms of having leverage on economic growth. It's lost a lot of that leverage. So the two huge policy tools that were used for decades to get the economy out of a recession and to spur growth, they've been losing their effectiveness for a very long time. And I don't think that is going to change in the next 10 to 20 years. So again, we're reaching a critical point where policy tools 
are less effective. The amount of debt, interest expense is you know going through the roof. Demographics aren't favorable in terms of the number of bodies entering the labor force. All these things are coming together at the same time when we're seeing more polarization in this country than any of us have seen during our lifetimes. That doesn't add up to a good outcome until you get to a point where things get so bad that things have to change. And I think that's where we're headed. I'm not trying to be negative. I'm not a negative person. I'm trying to be realistic and look at what I see in front of me. And there's no other way to, for me at least, to come to a different conclusion that we're going to go through a really difficult time over the next 10 to 15 years as we grapple with all of this stuff that took decades to build up. In other words, there is no easy solution. Yeah, because when you look at this and you kind of wonder, you just mentioned two of the tools, monetary policy, fiscal policy, spending to get us out of a recession, lowering rates to get us out of a recession. And as we go forward, we're spending right now at a rate typically that you would do to stimulate the economy coming out of a recession. So I guess the real question is, what does this look like if we actually do go into a recession? It's just, again, the bond vigilantes are going to make an appearance. I mean, if the economy slows materially or enters a recession next year, there's going to be a knee-jerk reaction. The Fed's going to cut rates. Okay. As I said, pension funds, insurance companies, they're going to rush to buy treasury bonds to lock in those higher yields. So you're going to get the classic response to a recession, both by the Fed, and I'm sure the, you know, Congress will come up with some spending on its additional spending on its own. But after you get through that kind of, you you know, euphoria, that, oh, okay, they're doing something, then the reality sets into, gee, the economy's not snapping back as fast or as strongly as expected. The deficit continues to climb. Issuance of treasury paper by the government isn't being well received and treasury yields are climbing, you know, that's just a prescription for a difficult time in equities. Combination of weak growth coming out of recession and higher interest rates is something that no one has seen that going back to probably the 1930s. So it's just important, I think, for people to realize and accept that we've got some challenges dead ahead and the tools that have been used in the past are just, you know, they've lost their effectiveness and I don't see their regaining effectiveness when the situation deteriorates as you and I have been talking about. So tough times, you know. Yeah. So given that, Jim, heading into 2024, we're getting defensive, you know, things like staples, maybe pharmaceuticals, uh, drug companies, things that would hold up much better in an economy. If we get down to less than half a percent growth and some of these yields come down in the short term, I think this is a time, at least in my opinion, to be defensive, not go after in the Magnificent Seven or some of this high-tech stuff that is selling at evaluations that are at a nosebleed level. Yep. Well, I agree. And the one thing I'll, I'll mention is I remember in 2000, a lot of people were like, hey, these tech companies don't have to worry. They don't have to borrow money. If they need money, money they can issue stock. So they're immune to you know interest rates in the economy. And what I wrote about back then was that, yeah, they may be immune, but their customers aren't. And as the economy slows or goes into a recession, the people that are spending money on the products of the Mega 7, Magnificent 7, they're going to cut back. And so revenue growth, rather than being 25, 30%, slows to 10 to 15%. The justification of paying those high multiples will go away. And that's why I think if we see a meaningful slowdown as we get into next year by mid-year, we're going to see those stocks, I think, be 
pretty vulnerable as they report a big slowdown in their sales growth. In terms of the overall market, I think near term, Wall Street, as I said earlier, has this narrative. You know, the economy's not going to have a recession. Earnings are going up. The Fed's going to cut rates. I think that narrative can remain intact until we really see data points, Jim, that say, whoa, wait a second, maybe things are in fact slowing. And so that implies to me that technically the market will probably push higher into early next year. I think there's a decent chance that the S&P 500 will go to a new all-time high above 48.18. But sometime in the first quarter, my guess is we're going to see a very significant peak. And once that peak is recorded, and again, this is where technical analysis can be very, very helpful to identify when the market's getting ready to roll over. I think once, if I'm right again about the economy slowing materially, we're going to see the S&P, I think, potentially challenge the October low from last year at 3,500 because Wall Street is convinced there won't be a recession. If they're wrong, it's going to be a kind of a a wake-up call where, wait a second, you mean earnings aren't going to go up 11%? They might actually go down. So that to me is the prescription coming, I think, for 2024. Strength early in the year, followed by a fairly significant decline. And you know, I think investors, and I think you are preparing for that, the majority of investors are caught up <laughs> with the narrative, no recession, Fed's cutting rates, Woo-hoo! you know? And again, my point is when the majority of people become positive or negative, like we saw this just in October of this year, People were really negative. Oh my God, treasury yields are going to keep going up. That's the time to look for indications that things are going to go the other direction. And I think we're approaching that time early next year where so much positivity is out there, but it's predicated on two things. Fed's going to be cutting rates. I don't think so. The economy's not going to have a recession. I don't think so. So as you said earlier, we're headed for a period of more volatility. Obviously, later in the year, the election is going <laughs> to contribute to that. Yeah, because I mean, if you just take a look at, let's take Apple, one of the magnificent seven, they've had four quarters of consecutive declining sales, and yet their stock is at an all-time record. So once again, caught up in that narrative. And so listen, Jim, as we close, if our listeners would like to follow the work you do at Macro Tides, tell them how they can do so. And by the way, we're going to post your latest letter. We're going to put that up on the website. So many of the issues we've been discussing in this broadcast, they'll be able to follow that and get more detail. Yep. Go to macrotides.com. You'll be able to read you know, some prior letters and so forth, get an idea of how I combine fundamental and technical analysis. There are very few people in the country Jim, that do it at this level. And I can tell you is that it has helped me tremendously over the years by incorporating technical analysis with the fundamental side of the equation. Also, there's just portions of the December letter will be on your website if they want the complete letter, as well as a couple other special reports, the coming secular bear market. Send me an email, jimwelshmacro at gmail. And I'm happy to send them out. You have a great pool of uh, listeners, Jim, and for good reason. I think you do a great job. Well, the one report I would recommend anybody listening is get a hold of your coming secular bear market, because I see a lot of parallels to the late 60s and the 70s. There's so many. In fact, we did a show on it, but that report highlights a lot of these parallels. And nobody is really looking at that from a longer term view. And I would just point out, Jim, look what we've gone through in just three years. 2020, lockdowns, pandemic. 21, Ukraine war, big bear market pullback in 2022. 
Now we got the Hamas war, and next year we've got a divisive election coming. So it's going to be a decade of turbulence, very much like the late 60s and 70s. As you see these protests on campus, brings me back to the late 60s and 70s protests on campus. So listen, my friend, I want to wish you a happy holidays and a prosperous new year, and I look forward to talking to you once again next year. Thank you, Jim. Uh, Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah to you and all the listeners out there. Always appreciate our conversation, Jim. All right. Take care, my friend. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939 or go to FinancialSenseWealth.com and hit where it says, Contact Us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Joining us on the show for this week's Smart Macro is Chris Poplava, the CIO of Financial Sense Wealth Management. So, Chris, this week the Fed met and Chair Powell let the doves fly with three potential rate cuts next year, which was more than what was being penciled in. What are your thoughts on the meeting and any key takeaways that came from it? Well, the one thing I wanted to see is what prompted the, the Fed's change in terms of their expectations that they will be lowering interest rates next year. And when I looked at the data, which was their last summary of economic projections was September. What we saw was that there was really no change to growth. There was no change to interest rate expectations or even the unemployment rate. The the main change was the inflation outlook, where I believe they reduced the expected inflation next year from 3.5 down to 2.8. So that was really the only change I could see in terms of their outlook for 2024 that could prompt them to cut interest rates. So I found that fascinating that they really didn't cut anything else. But the reason why this was so interesting, Chris, was that you know prior to this meeting, the Fed and the markets were going a different direction. So essentially, the market was saying, we don't buy your hire for longer. Because prior to this week's meeting, the Fed was not projecting any rate cuts for 24. And I think only a single rate cut for 2025, if I remember correctly. So the last time we saw this was in 2018, when Powell was raising interest rates, and we were starting to see some pain in the markets, uh, particularly in the fourth quarter. And um, one of the things that scared Powell was in the in December of 2018, the uh, junk bond market in the U.S. completely seized up, or not a single deal came to the market. But um, prior to that occurring, Powell was still kind of status quo. You know, the Fed was going to keep shrinking its balance sheet, and the Fed was likely to continue raising interest rates and normalizing policy. And the market kept expecting him to break. And when he didn't, the market really sold off in those final two weeks of December. And it was only when eventually, you know, the the market fell 20%, the junk bond market seized that Powell turned around. But, you know, for a while there, it was a game of chicken. And the one to move first was the markets. And it was only when the markets fell over in in tank that uh, the Fed finally caved and came to the markets view. So that was one of the big concerns I was worried about going into next year was that the Fed would continue doing what it said it was going to do, keeping interest rates elevated 
um, higher for longer, basically, while the market was expecting rate cuts. And if the Fed didn't deliver, then there would have to be some adjustment seen in the financial markets. But instead, part of the reason why the market flew, it was the Fed who basically was playing chicken with the market and then blinked first. So the market was already discounting rate cuts, and now the Fed is coming into the same view as the markets. So uh, that, that was interesting uh, in terms of the Fed actually moving first, not the markets, which kind of we don't we don't see it. We see it the other way around. So in summary, Chris, as you said, the Fed is penciling in the potential for three rate cuts. So this was obviously a dovish turn by the Federal Reserve, and the market is responding to that with the expectation for monetary conditions, financial conditions to be easing up next year. Let's talk about the economic outlook in that case. The consensus is that there's going to be a soft landing. Uh, the worst is probably a mild recession, but no severe recession, really, according to the consensus view. It seems like base case right now is soft landing uh, or some still holding on hope to there being no landing and you know the market really taking off in 2024. That was something that Ed Yardeni had discussed on RFS Insider Show this week, talking about he's now doubling down on the roaring 20s. Uh, scenario unfolding in the years ahead and that we're going to see a productivity growth boom. So he's he's much more on the bullish side. Felix Zuloff likening this period to more along the lines of the 70s with higher amounts of volatility, inflation, and interest rates. So those are probably the two kind of diverging camps. What do you make of all this? You know, I, I think the one thing we, we should learn over the last few months or few years or so is that Anything can happen. I mean, um, you know, especially when there's a consensus, the market tends to go in the other way. Uh, for example, going into this year, there, it was not a question if we'd have a recession. It was whether it would occur in the first half or the second half of the year. So that was consensus. And obviously, neither of that happened. So, you know, I think we do have to be kind of open minded and worry about the consensus because often at times it, it can be wrong. And for me, Chris, I still have concern about the outlook. Um, I don't think we've repealed the business cycle. We still have an inverted yield curve. It's a very negative environment for banks to be operating in. And given that, uh, I think there still remains some concern. And I think part of why things look okay is there's a lot of support that we've had over the last 12 to 18 months that is starting to move to the sidelines. For example, the excess pandemic savings that uh, consumers had saved up. Uh, that basically helped them to keep their consumption trends going rather than having to retrench. But now that that's largely been exhausted, what we're seeing is that consumers are now seeing their savings rates fall and they're starting to turn towards credit cards. That's not a good sign. Something has to give in terms of consumption relative to income. Uh, a couple of other things that concern me is when we look at the um, jobs market, when we look at the jobless claims, initial claims so far are, are relatively low. They did pick up earlier this year, but they've since moved down. But what we are seeing is continuing claims are hitting a two-year high. So continuing claims consistently are, are trending up, which is not a good sign for the job market, meaning those who are unemployed are staying unemployed and they can't find a, a new job. So that's a concern. The other thing, too, is unfortunately, the government data, Chris, gets heavily, heavily revised around economic turning points. So during a downturn, when the economy is about to slip in a recession, we're overstating jobs that get subsequently heavily revised down. And conversely, when we come out of a recession, we actually have higher jobs than what is initially being reported, and those get revised sharply higher. Uh, we saw that coming out of the COVID lockdown. So we started going back to work. 
2021 and even 2022, we were understating the jobs. And so when the subsequent revisions came up, they were showing that we actually had a lot more jobs being created than initially reported. So at turning points, I'm always suspect of, of the government data because of all these revisions and changes. And so that's why it's sometimes nice to look at data that's not revised or is independent of the government's modeling. And one of the ones I've been relying on to get a better sense of the jobs market is the Paycheck Small Business Employment uh, Index. So what a Paychex does, it's a payroll service company. They essentially take all of their customer data in terms of um, all the businesses across the country and what their payrolls are. And then they use that as a sample set to extrapolate for the country. And it gives you a pretty good sense in terms of what they're seeing and it's actual Bing counting. So you're not seeing massive revisions or any birth death model or anything like that. It's more true bean counting. And when we do that, Chris, we see a different picture. For example, the paychecks index, um, jobs index, is down 0.8% versus 12 months ago. So when we look at November of 22 to November of this year, uh, they're showing a payroll decline of almost 1%. Now that stands in sharp contrast to what we're seeing in non-farm payrolls. Non-farm payrolls, the last 12 months show a net payroll growth of 1.8%. So we're talking, uh, you know, a, a pretty significant change looking at one versus the other. So that's why I have kind of a skeptical view of the jobs market and think it might be worse than what is being perceived, particularly, as I mentioned, when you look at continuing claims just hit a two-year high. So I wouldn't hold my breath just yet in, in terms of thinking we've dodged the bullet uh, with missing a recession. I think we need to see a couple more months. I mean, you know, especially not from payrolls around the holidays and seasonal periods, they could be sharply higher in terms of seasonal hiring. So there could be a lot of noise there. So I'd want to see the, uh, we got November, I'd like to see December and January payroll. So I think we need at least another two to three months of payroll data to say that we've dodged the bullet. Uh, for me personally, I'm skeptical, and I think they might be surprising on the downside. Uh, we're still, you know, in a manufacturing downturn. When you look at the U.S. manufacturing PMI, that remains in contractionary territory. For December, it was at uh, 48.2 for the uh, market S&P Global PMI. When we look at the ISM manufacturing index by the Institute of Supply Management. Their manufacturing PMI for November is 46.7. That's still in contraction territory. So as far as right now, we're still in a manufacturing recession. It's debatable if that spills over into a consumer recession. But there too, as I mentioned, we had a lot of pandemic savings to kind of keep things afloat, which has largely been exhausted. So it'll be interesting to see if we start to see a pullback in consumer spending going forward based on that. One thing that Felix Zuloff and both Ed Yardeni had discussed, as well as many others have pointed out, is when you have the U.S. government spending six over $6 trillion in fiscal year 2023, which ended in October, uh, it's hard to see you know, the U.S. economy falling into a recession when there's just that amount of spending that's taking place. Well, in terms of government spending, Chris, you know, when we measure the economy, it's not the level, it's the growth rate, right? So when we look at the increased spending in terms of uh, the federal government, the Biden administration definitely ramped things up starting from June of 22 to the present. But if, you know, unless they're actually going to increase their um, the budget deficit and the amount of fiscal outlays, then there's really no growth. I mean, the growth rate is zero. 
So I don't think you're going to see the government ramp up spending even more back to, let's say, the 2021 level coming out of the pandemic. That doesn't seem reasonable. Um, so I don't really think the government is going to be a wild card. It might have, may have been able to keep us out of recession this year with the growth of government spending versus a contraction like what we saw in late 21, early 22. But I, I doubt the government's going to be ramping up spending from here. I think, if anything, it'll more or less be status quo. So I don't think the government's going to add to growth. And, um, you know, in, in terms of the markets, we, we just seem to be losing a lot of the supports that kept things afloat over the last year. And one of the ones that I'm concerned about is the repo facility. So money market funds, when the Fed was raising interest rates, they cut their duration or maturity band by going into overnight repos. I mean, that's basically a duration of one day um, versus longer term T-bills of three months and plus. And once it became apparent that the Fed was likely done since June, the repo facility was roughly around $2.2, $2.3 trillion. And when it became apparent that the Fed was likely done, we saw money market funds extend their average maturity of their holdings by going back into T-bills. And as of today, Chris, the repo facility at the Fed is at $683 billion. So just think about that for a second. From $2.3 trillion to $683 billion just in the last six months. And if we keep going on this path um, in terms of it being extinguished, then we'll probably see the repo facility completely drained roughly around February, maybe March. And once that happens, it's been a massive source of buying of T-bills. The, the question I have is we, we've seen interest rates decline ever since October, particularly this year with the Fed. But is it possible that we might see interest rates stabilize in the first quarter as we exhaust the repo facility if there's not any marginal buyer? So um, definitely a lot of watch points, Chris. I think the next three months will be very key. Again, getting a couple more payroll reports to see what the jobs market truly looks like and also seeing how the market reacts without that buying support coming from the repo facility. So I, th I think it's too soon to declare uh, victory on the soft landing and that uh, everything will be fine. Because again, when you look at it historically, the market does tend to rally between the last rate hike and the first cut. So what will be interesting to see, that's normal, is what happens after that. So if the Fed is cutting because we're going into a downturn, usually stocks fall during a recessionary period. But if we are reaccelerating, but the inflation rate goes down, and that's why the, the central bank is cutting, then the stock market could continue on. So I, I think really honestly, Chris, the, the next two to three months will be very, very key to watch in terms of do we have an economic downturn? That means this rallying stock market is likely not sustainable. And if we have a downturn, then we should likely see employment numbers begin to soften and see some outright job uh, losses in going into next year. So, you know, where I'm trying to keep an open mind in terms of which direction the economy markets will go. So, you know, more or less neutral at this point. But, uh, you know, I guess as the Fed says, we're, we're data dependent. So we'll, we'll adjust our client allocation uh, depending on the incoming data going forward. Yeah. And that was basically the message from Felix Sulaf when we spoke with him. He's telling people to remain tactical and basically that, you know, he's still long, but he's pretty close to the exits because he's expecting that this bull run that we've seen since the October 2022 bottom, uh, it's going to extend into the first quarter, at which point he expects the market to put in a top before seeing a fairly sharp decline, 
particularly given with the level of concentration that we see by investors into the Magnificent Seven. And then at that point, he's actually expecting a, a pretty significant bottom in 2024 to set up for the next powerful rally that uh, could take us up as high as you know 6,000 to 7,000 on the S&P 500 is what he's expecting. But less of the view from Ed Yardeni in terms of a roaring 2020s, much more of a volatile affair is what Felix Suloff is cautioning investors to keep in mind or prepare for. You know, that's a good point, Chris. That's another thing to really keep an eye on is we have so much money in, in systematic trading funds, CTAs and risk parity funds. So basically their exposure is impacted by volatility. So if the VIX or the volatility index for stocks goes down, well, that allows them to increase their equity exposure. And when the VIX rises, then they have to decrease. And when we look at the VIX as of today, the VIX is setting at 12. I mean, that's incredibly low. And I, I believe uh, over the last week or so, it was um, briefly below 12. So that's a really low level. And if we see that VIX start to spike to 15, 16, and get back into the 20s, well, then we could see some selling pressure coming from these large institutional uh, funds. So uh, it'll be really key to watch that, the volatility for bonds, stocks, uh, commodities, interest, you know, everything. If we see a general rise in volatility, to me, that means incremental selling coming from these big players who are a huge source of buying. So that's going to be another thing, Chris, that is definitely on the front of my watch list are the volatility indices for the various financial markets, as well as incoming economic data. Once again, we've been speaking with Chris Paplava, Chief Investment Officer here at Financial Sense Wealth Management. And Chris, we look forward to speaking with you in another few weeks. Pleasure, Chris. And I hope everyone has a Merry Christmas. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888-486-3939. Or you can also visit us on our website, financialsensewealth.com. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and strategists from around the globe, go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense NewsHour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour be advised that you invest at your own risk <laughs>